we'd like to take a moment to tell you about our other podcast, Everyday Saints. Everyday Saints is about the topics we all want to hear, and maybe some you don't even know are a thing. Hosted by me, Valerie Loveless, we delve into the things Everyday Saints want to know more about. Little-known temple facts, challenges from the prophet, how to live your best life in the spirit of the gospel, and more. Look for the Captain Moroni in your podcasting app. Brought to you by Cedarfort Publishing and Media. Hello, and welcome to the Cedarfort Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. I'm Casey Paul Griffiths, and I'll be your guest host for the week, and I am one of the authors of 50 Relics of the Restoration. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, sections 49 and 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which contain one of the most fascinating interactions the early saints have with another religious group, that's the Shakers, and also detail some trouble that existed among the saints themselves. In fact, these two sections back-to-back with each other are really a nice study and contrast of how different problems can be solved within the church. There are times in the church when there's major conflict between us and someone else over a significant reason, where we have to be direct and correct the doctrinal error in question because it could threaten someone's salvation. Then there's other times when instead of correcting, we have to sit down and reason with the person. In section 49 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Shakers are very much corrected for some of the beliefs that they have, which are in violation of the scriptures. And in section 50, the members of the church are reasoned with because what they're doing is more a result of their kind of new convert enthusiasm than them deliberately trying to teach false doctrine. So let's talk a little bit about section 49. If you would, open your scriptures up there. And here's some background. Section 49 revolves around a man named Lehman Copley. Lehman Copley was baptized in 1831, and at the time he was a prosperous farmer living in Thompson, Ohio, just a few miles away from Kirtland, Ohio, where the saints were gathering. Lehman had previously been a member of the United Society of Believers in Christ Second Appearing, or the Shakers. Now, Shakers was a nickname for Lehman Copley's former faith, um, used in a similar way that Mormons were used for the Latter-day Saints at the time. And they were called this because their worship services at times included a kind of euphoric dancing. Now, Lehman may have been attracted to the new church because of its similarity to the doctrines of the Shakers. The, the Saints and the Shakers actually had a few things in common that may have drawn him towards us. Uh, For instance, saints and shakers both believed in an apostasy of the Christian faith. They believed that men and women had agency, that the Lord had called new prophets, and that believers should share resources to reduce poverty. However, there were also big differences between the Shakers' doctrine and Lehman's new faith. For example, Shakers rejected the need for baptism and any other ordinance of the gospel. Some Shakers practiced vegetarianism. Shakers also believed that celibacy was a higher form of life. One Shaker leader taught his congregation that celibacy was the, quote, key to sinless perfection and salvation, unquote. This doctrine led to a segregation of the sexes and influenced all other aspects of Shaker life. Finally, and maybe most importantly, the Shakers believed that Jesus Christ had already returned to earth in the form of Mother Anne Lee, an early Shaker leader who defined many of their beliefs. Lehman Copley lived about 35 miles away from the primary Shaker community in the area, and he appears to have not been fully involved in the lifestyle of the Shakers himself. 
After he was baptized into the church, he was actually criticized by a Shaker leader named Ashbel Kitchell, who was the local leader of the Shakers in the area, for giving up on their plan of celibacy and having, quote, taken up with Mormonism as the easier plan. Um, this apparently bothered Lehman quite a bit, and he approached Joseph Smith with a request for a revelation clarifying some of the doctrines he had questions about. Joseph Smith later wrote in his history, quote, About this time came Lehman Copley, one of the sects called Shaking Quakers, and embraced the fullness of the everlasting gospel, apparently honest-hearted, but still retained ideas that Shakers were right in some particulars of their faith. And in order to have a more perfect understanding on the subject, I inquired of the Lord and received the following, Doctrine and Covenants, section 49. Unquote. The revelation basically calls Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt to accompany Lehman Copley on a mission to the Shakers. The three were directed to approach the Shakers, read the revelation to them, and then correct the Shakers' incorrect beliefs. Carrying the revelation with them, Sidney, Parley, and Lehman all set out to a nearby Shaker community located at North Union, Ohio. And there's still a town just up the road from Kirtland, Ohio today called Shaker Heights that's based off this. So the revelation, like I said, addresses in a pretty straightforward manner um, the Shaker's beliefs. It, it gives instructions in the first four verses to Sidney, Parley, and Lehman. It says, you shall go, this is verse one, and preach my gospel, which ye have received, even as ye received it unto the Shakers. I say unto you, they desire to know the truth in part, but not all, for they are not right before me, and they must needs repent. Now, Sidney and Parley were probably the most qualified missionaries among the saints to minister to the Shakers. Parley P. Brad actually grew up in New Lebanon, New York, which was close to the largest and most important Shaker community at Mount Lebanon. Records also show that Parley had several extended family members who were Shakers. Sidney Rigdon had been a minister in the region for several years and was also a strong supporter of communalism, of the law of consecration. That makes it likely that he traded with and had economic connections with the Shaker communities in North Union. Now, the Shakers had been visited earlier by missionaries uh, from our church, Oliver Cowdery and the missionaries, the Lamanites, that are discussed in section 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants, dropped in. They gave several copies of the Book of Mormon that circulated among the Shakers, but the Shakers didn't seem to show much interest, and so they moved on. Ashbel Kitchell, that's this Shaker elder that's on the scene, later writes, quote, They thought it prudent to wait on us for a while to leaven the work. So the thing moved on smoothly for some time after we'd had it for reflection, unquote. Now, um, according to Kitchbell, when Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt and Lehman Copley arrived, uh, Sidney Rigdon demonstrated some hesitation to share the revelation. Uh, Sidney arrived at first only with Lehman Copley, and the two men did not share the revelation right away, according to the Shaker elder. Uh, Ashbel Kitchell, the Shaker elder, later recorded, quote, they tarried all night. In the course of the evening, the doctrines of the cross and the Mormon faith were both investigated. Thus the matter stood when we retired to rest, not knowing they had in possession what was called the revelation or message from Jesus Christ to us. Now the next day, which was Sunday, Parley P. Pratt arrived at the community and Parley announced that they, quote, had come with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the people must hear it, unquote. After, uh, Sidney Rigdon read the message to the Shakers. Now, the correction among the Shakers really starts um, around verse 5, where the Lord teaches the most important doctrine, that is, Jesus Christ and his mission. The Lord tells them, this is verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, for I am God, and have sent mine only begotten Son into the world for the redemption of the world, and have decreed that he that receiveth him shall be saved, and he that receiveth him not shall be damned. So, right off the bat, 
the only begotten son, the mission of Jesus Christ and his importance. The revelation shows no hesitation in addressing this teaching of the church, which is the most important teaching that we have that Jesus Christ came to redeem the world. This might have been a sharp point of disagreement between the missionaries and the Shakers. According to some sources, Shakers did not believe in the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ, instead seeing the role of Jesus Christ as being kind of an example to the believers. In the Revelation, that's the reason why the Lord first addresses this belief, just unequivocally telling them that he came to redeem the world and that acceptance of Jesus Christ and his mission is a matter of salvation or damnation. Um, surprisingly, some Latter-day Saints have been accused of the same thing. Uh, a 1980 article in Newsweek magazine that was quoted by Elder Bruce Hafen reported that unlike Orthodox Christians, Mormons believe that men earn their way to godhood by the proper exercise of free will rather than through the grace of Jesus Christ. Thus, Jesus' suffering and death in the Mormon view were brotherly acts of compassion, but they do not atone for the sins of others. That was in Newsweek, September 1st, 1980, page 68. In contrast to this, the First Presidency and the Twelve have said in the living Christ that, quote, Jesus Christ gave his life to atone for the sins of all mankind. His gift was a great vicarious gift in behalf of all who would ever live on the earth. Now, this is instructive in a certain sense. When when the missionaries approach the Shakers, they address the most important doctrinal deviation between the two of them. They just flat out tell them that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that that's a matter of salvation. We can do the same thing too. Uh, we need to be very, very clear with people that they know we're Christian, that, that we wear our Christianity on our sleeve and we're disciples of Jesus Christ. I remember back when I was a missionary, uh, they changed the logo of the church on our little black badges from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all the same size, to the Church of Small Print, Jesus Christ, large print uh, of Latter-day Saints, small print. I even remember a guy coming up to me in a bike shop and looking at my name badge and saying, how you doing? Jesus? The name Jesus Christ was so big on my name badge, uh, he thought that was my name. But it just goes to show that sometimes we have to be overt about this. We have to be direct in preaching Jesus Christ. We can't let somebody uh, that, that isn't a member of our church come to a sacrament meeting or a fast and testimony meeting or a come follow me lesson without knowing that first and foremost, we believe in Jesus Christ and his mission to bring salvation to the earth. Now, as the revelation goes on, um, the next thing that he addresses is the question that the Shakers had of ordinances. Shakers didn't believe that ordinances were necessary uh, for salvation. And so verse 8 starts with, I will that all men should repent for all are under sin, except which I, those I have reserved for myself, holy men that ye know not of. Then he tells them directly, verse 12, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus who was on earth and is to come the beginning and the end. Repent and be baptized. He's emphasizing ordinances here. In the name of Jesus Christ, according to the holy commandment for the remission of sins, and whoso doeth this shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying out of hands by the elders of the church. Now, a later revelation to Joseph Smith is basically going to say, in the ordinances of the gospel, the power of godliness is manifest. That's section 84, verse 20. And throughout the scriptures, uh, not just the Doctrine and Covenants, but the Book of Mormon, the Bible, all emphasize the importance of salvation. Joseph Smith, speaking on this later in his life in an 1844 discourse, declared, the question is frequently asked, can we be saved without going through all these ordinances? I would answer, no, not the fullness of salvation. So, this 
is is laying the groundwork for Latter-day Saints to basically say to the people around them, we believe that Jesus Christ can save, but here's how he saves. He saves through ordinances. In Nauvoo, when Joseph Smith said we had to be saved by ordinances, the context there is he's stressing the need for people that are even deceased. Even someone that's already passed on from this life can still receive the ordinances through the sealing power, and there's no other way for them to gain salvation or full salvation, Joseph Smith would say. Now, next, in verse 15, the Lord addresses another key point of contention with the Shakers, saying, Verily I say unto you, Whoso forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God, for marriage is ordained of God unto man, wherefore it's lawful that he should have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and this that the earth might answer the end of its creation. Now, let me point out a couple of things here. This is the a verse that's referenced specifically in the family proclamation where it says marriage is ordained of God. This little tiny verse to the Shakers is very, very important to us. Where it says here that it's lawful that a man should have one wife, that was the law of the church at the time. Now the Lord's going to reveal a more complicated set of sealing ordinances and marriages in Nauvoo that includes plural marriage. But in the context of this revelation, uh, where they're speaking to the Shakers at this time. That was the law and commandment of the church, and it's also the law and commandment of the church today. Now, they're doing this directly to address the Shaker belief that celibacy is a higher form of life. By the way, there aren't very many Shakers around today, partially because they didn't have any little Shakers uh, to to continue and repopulate uh, their, their population. In the New Testament, uh, Paul's epistle to Timothy also states that forbidding to marry is one of the signs of apostasy. That's 1 Timothy 4, 3. And revelations to Joseph Smith, for instance, section 131 and 132, are going to emphasize the importance of marriage. The family proclamation, uh, which was given in 1995, also states that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. The family is central to the creator's plan for the eternal destiny of his children. Now, in verse 18, they address maybe a little bit stranger teaching, whoso forbiddeth to abstain from meats, that man should not eat the same, is not ordained of God. For behold, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and that which cometh of the earth is ordained for the use of man for raiment, that he might have an abundance. Now, we should be clear that this does not address vegetarianism or say that vegetarianism in and of itself is evil. The Lord doesn't give his approval or disapproval of vegetarianism. He just says that you shouldn't forbid others to eat meat. He also specifies that animals are for food and clothing, and that's appropriate as long as men and women act in wise stewards in their environments. The Lord even goes so far as to, um, verse 21, saying, Woe be unto man that sheddeth blood or wasteth flesh, that hath no need. So the Lord might not be as good with the idea that you go out and just kill for fun uh, or shed blood unnecessarily. In fact, several years after this revelation is given, Joseph Smith was involved in an incident that illustrated this teaching. He's traveling uh, to Missouri with a group later known as Zion's Camp. And the men on the expedition run into three rattlesnakes and are about to kill them when Joseph intervenes. Uh, according to the history of the church, Joseph said, let them alone. Don't hurt them. How will the serpent ever lose its venom while the servants of God possess the same disposition and continue to make war upon them? Joseph later writes that he taught the brethren that men must become harmless before the brute creation. And when men lose their vicious dispositions to cease to destroy the animal race, the lion and the lamb can dwell together and the second child play with the serpent with safety. Of course, along the way, it's not saying that we can't kill animals for food arraignment, for providing for our family. It's just this unnecessary killing that's that's something the Lord frowns on. In fact, there's another incident uh, spoken of uh, in Joseph Smith's history where Joseph walked up and saw a group of men observing a squirrel in a tree to prove them if 
they would heed his counsel, he said, I took one of their guns, I shot the squirrel and passed on, leaving the squirrel on the ground. Apostle Orson Hyde, who was present, came up, picked up the squirrel and said, we will cook this, that nothing may be lost. So they took this to heart. Now, the next part of the revelation addresses the idea that the Savior had already come, that the second coming had already occurred in the form of Anne Lee. Verse 22, the revelation says, Verily I say unto you, the Son of Man cometh not in the form of a woman, neither of a man traveling on the earth. Wherefore, be not deceived, but continue in steadfastness, looking for the heavens to be shaken, and the earth to tremble and reel to and fro as a drunken man, and for the valleys to be exalted, the mountains to be made low, and the rough places to become smooth. All this when the angel shall sound his trumpet. This is establishing two basic things about the second coming. First, at this date and time, they're saying... They don't know exactly when the second coming is going to happen. The second thing is that the second coming isn't going to be anything like the first coming. The first Christmas story is about a baby being born to a mother in a humble little stable in Bethlehem. The second coming in the scriptures is very, very much different from that. It's the Savior coming to earth in a glorified, resurrected body. The first coming of the Savior was relatively unknown, except to a small group of people, including those shepherds that were there that first night, the wise men who came sometime later. The second coming is going to be completely obvious. In fact, a better model for the second coming would probably be the way the Savior came to earth in Third Nephi. There's massive upheavals. Uh, there's societal collapse and the savior appears in time to stop those calamities from overtaking all the people the shakers at this time believed that jesus had already returned to the earth and had been reincarnated on in Anne lee uh, that was another error on their part to believe that the savior's gender was fluid uh, another teaching of the family proclamation that's tied back to this revelation is the idea that gender is an essential characteristic of individual premortal, mortal and eternal identity and purpose. Shakers believed that God had a dual nature that was both male and female. We, in response, would teach, no, God is male, but there is a heavenly mother. There is a divine feminine that rules at God's side. Another important part of the revelation is in verse 24. The, the Lord tells them, the great day of the Lord shall come. Jacob shall flourish in the wilderness and the Lamanites shall blossom as the rose. This is another important one of those statements in the Doctrine and Covenants that identifies the Lamanites as a chosen people and gives them a, a promise that they will blossom, that they'll be um, blessed before the second coming. Now, we want to be careful with this because uh, we sometimes made... Uh, direct assumptions about who and what the Lamanites are. The term Lamanite, for instance, is used pretty fluidly in the Book of Mormon. Sometimes it speaks of ancestry, like in Mosiah 10, 11 through 17. Sometimes it speaks of an ideological alignment, like their beliefs, as in 4 Nephi 1, 36 through 38. Um, in the latter days, some Latter-day Saints have used the term Lamanite uh, in a derogatory way, but for the most part, it's used as a term to extend and apply the scriptural blessings promised to the house of Israel. An official church essay that was published a couple of years ago on Lamanite identity states that, quote, saints who have identified as Lamanites have made substantial contributions to the church and their communities as they have aimed to realize the Lord's promises to his covenant people. Larry Echohawk, who's a church leader of American Indian ancestry, spoke about his experience with the Book of Mormon. He said, as I read the Book of Mormon, it seemed to me that it was about my American Indian ancestors. He added, I especially ask the remnant of the house of Israel, the descendants of the people of the Book of Mormon, wherever you may be, to read and reread the Book of Mormon. The promises contained in the Book of Mormon follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ, make and keep 
covenants with the Lord. Seek for and follow guidance of the Holy Spirit. Just remember that in this revelation, oddly enough to the Shakers, the Lord does give his promise that Jacob shall flourish in the wilderness and the Lamanites blossom as the rose. Now at the end of the revelation, the Lord again asks them to seek their own revelation. Uh, he says, behold, I say unto you, this is verse 26, go forth as I has commanded, repent of all your sins, ask and ye shall receive, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Now, how do the Shakers receive this revelation? Not too well. Uh, Ashbel Kitchell, the Shaker elder that's on the scene, according to his history, uh, wrote that he, quote, said, I would release them and their Christ from any further burden about us and take all responsibility on myself. According to Ashbel Kitchell, Rigdon then asked to hear from the congregation, Kitchell said the congregation declared they were fully satisfied with what they have. Kitchell then said, quote, upon hearing this, Rigdon professed to be satisfied and put his paper by, but Parley P. Pratt arose to commence shaking his coattail. He said he shook the dust from his garments as a testimony against us that we had rejected the word of the Lord Jesus. And apparently after this, Kitch Kitchell rebuked Parley and then accused Lehman Copley of hypocrisy, reducing Copley to tears. And one thing that's clear is that this experience really shakes Lehman Copley. He's this new convert to the church. And it's clear that he was kind of struggling and his former congregants kind of took it out on him. They were mad at him. They yelled at him. When he came home, he was a little bit shaken in his faith. He refuses later on to honor an agreement that he'd made to permit church members migrating from Colesville, New York to live on his farm. That's in section 54 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And over the next couple of years, he goes back and forth between the saints and the shakers, at least while they're in Kirtland, he does affiliate with several different Christian churches and dies near his home of Thompson, Ohio in 1862. As for the shakers, they did continue to grow during the 19th century. And I should note at this time, there were probably more shakers than there were Latter-day Saints. Their peak, which is really around the time that Sidney and, and Lehman and Parley go visit them, uh, is when there's about 2,000 to 4,000 Shakers living in 18 different communities. However, as I mentioned earlier, the Shaker belief in celibacy and then stricter laws making it illegal for religious groups to adopt children meant that their population went downhill pretty fast. By the 21st century, there was only one remaining Shaker at Sabbath Day Lake, Maine, and only a handful of Shakers, probably less than five individuals, depending on how you count it, remain today. Now, let's turn to section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and where section 49 is very much a direct confrontation, you, you're, you're believing some wrong things, and I've got to correct you. I've just got to tell you what the truth is. Section 50 is a little bit different. It's not a problem um, of believing in false doctrine. It's a problem of misinterpreting or misunderstanding uh, true doctrine. When Joseph Smith arrives in Ohio, from the first time he gets there, there's major, major concerns over the kind of overabundance of religious enthusiasm. John Whitmer, who's the historian of the church, for instance, uh, notes with some distress that, quote, the enemy of all righteous had got a hold of some of those who professed to be his followers because they had not sufficient knowledge to detect him as devices. John Whitmer goes on to record uh, some of the manifestations, he said, quote, some had visions and could not tell what they saw. And some would fancy to themselves that they had the sword of Laban and would yield it as expert as a light dragoon. And some would act like an Indian in the act of scalping. Some would slide or scoot on the floor with the rapidity of a serpent. And they termed sailing 
which they term sailing in a boat to the Lamanites, preaching the gospel, and many other vain and foolish maneuvers are unseeming and unprofitable to mention. Thus the devil blinded the eyes of some good and honest disciples. That's John Whitmer describing some of the craziness uh, that's going on. Now other people notice this. For instance, Parley P. Pratt has already traveled all the way to Missouri to teach uh, on the borders by the Lamanites. Now he comes back to Kirtland, and he says, as I went forth among the different branches, some very strange spiritual operations were manifested, which were disgusting rather than edifying. And he later writes, some persons would seem to swoon away, make unseemly gestures, and be drawn or disfigured in their countenances. Others would fall into ecstasies, be drawn into contortions, cramps, fits, etc. Others would have visions and revelations which were not edifying and which were not congenial to the spirit of the gospel. In short, a false and lying spirit seemed to be creeping into the church. Now, even people that weren't members of the church, according to the contemporary source of the time, start to notice weird things among the Latter-day Saints. Uh, For instance, uh, a local newspaper, the town over was Painesville. The Painesville Telegraph noted, at times they, the members of the church, are taken with a fit of jabbering, which they neither understand themselves nor anybody else, and this they speak foreign language by divine inspiration. Again, the young men are seen running over the hills in pursuit, they say, of balls of fire, which they see flying through the air. In fact, one well-known episode from this time apparently involved uh, a member of the church that was an early african-american convert to the church we don't know um what his uh, full name was he's only known as black pete in the record which was kind of common uh, for someone that may have been a freed slave according to one newspaper um they said that the mormonites have an african who fancies he can fly he chose the elevated bank of lake erie as a starting place spreading his pinions he lit on a treetop some 50 feet below sustaining no damage other than the demolition of his faith and wings without feathers now obviously these unusual manifestations are making a stir in the neighborhood they concern the prophet they concern the members of the church that are migrating to Kirtland from New York, and they also concern the people that aren't members of the church in the surrounding area. So this revelation, section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants, was intended to address that specifically. Um, Parley P. Pratt said that he was present when section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants was given, and Parley gave a very, very uh, careful description of what it looked like for Joseph Smith to receive a revelation. He later writes, Each sentence was uttered slowly and very distinctly, and with a pause between each, sufficiently long for it to be recorded by an ordinary writer in longhand. This was the manner in which all of his written revelations were dictated and written. There was never any hesitation, reviewing, or reading back in order to keep the run of the subject. Neither did any of these communications undergo revisions, interlinings, or corrections. As they dictated them, so they stood. So far as I have witnessed, and I was present to witness the dictation of several communications of several pages each. And then he notes that he's there when section 50 is given. Section 50 takes a different approach. The Lord does rebuke some people like he does in section 49, but he does take a more gentle hand. So he starts out, verse 1, Hearken, O ye elders of my church, and give ear to the voice of the living God. Attend to the words of wisdom which shall be given unto you, according as ye have asked and are agreed as touching the church and the spirits that have gone abroad in the earth. Then he addresses them, verse 2, saying, There are many spirits that are false spirits, which have gone forth in the earth deceiving the world. And also Satan has sought to deceive you that he might overthrow you. So the Lord just comes out basically and says, look, some of these manifestations that you are experiencing are not from me. They come from the other guy. And they're causing you to do things that 
Well, the Savior does use the word abominations. Verse 4, I have seen the abominations in the church that profess my name. Now, this is, like we said, not a, a dismissal of what the church members are experiencing. The Lord is acknowledging that some of the spiritual manifestations they're having are genuine. They just don't come from him. It's possible for Satan to duplicate some of the gifts of the Spirit, to sometimes cause people to feel like they have experienced uh, things that, that are God's power, but really come from Satan's power. Um, Joseph Smith later on um, actually wrote an article in a church newspaper called Try the Spirits, where he said, recent occurrences that have transpired amongst us render it an imperative duty devolving upon me to say something in relation to the spirits by which men are actuated. It's evident from the apostles' writings that false spirits existed in their day and had gone forth into the world, and that it needed intelligence which God alone could impart to detect false spirits and to prove which spirits were of God. And then Joseph Smith suggests to try the spirits. Try the spirits and ask what they do, how they help you. He said this, The Egyptians were not able to discover the difference between the miracles of Moses and those of the magicians until they came to be tested together. And if Moses had not appeared in their midst, they would unquestionably have thought that the miracles of the magicians were performed through the mighty power of God, or they were great miracles manifested by them, and a super at, supernatural agency developed and great power manifested. So he's acknowledging here that if you go back to the Bible, the Egyptian magicians that appeared before the Pharaoh at the time of Moses were able to do amazing things. It was when they were placed side by side with Moses that the group that had true power became evident. Joseph Smith was saying the same thing, that we need to be careful and try the spirits. Satan's really good at deceiving, and Joseph Smith counseled, quote, it requires the spirit of God to know the things of God, and the spirit of the devil can only be unmastered that medium. So one quick way to try the spirit would be to have the spirit with you. Make sure that you're doing the things that cause you to have the Holy Ghost at your side so that you can feel the Holy Ghost promptings and know when spiritual manifestations are false. Now, the revelation goes further, verse 6, to also address another problem among the saints, and that's hypocrisy. The Lord says, Woe unto them that are deceivers and hypocrites, for thus saith the Lord, I will bring them to judgment. Behold, verily I say unto you, there are hypocrites among you who have deceived some, which has given the adversary power, and behold, such shall be reclaimed. But the hypocrites shall be detected or cut off. Now, the Savior, during his lifetime, also speaks about hypocrisy. When he's a mortal man on earth, this seems to be the most serious charge that he leveled to people. He spoke to the Pharisees on one occasion and said, You Pharisees, now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inwarding part is full of ravening and wickedness. That's Luke eleven thirty nine. Joseph Smith also did not like hypocrisy. You'll note that one of the very first things the Savior identifies to Joseph Smith in the first vision is the hypocrisy among the religious leaders. The Savior said to Joseph Smith, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In the church today, there still might be hypocrisy, and we need to be able to recognize the difference between someone that's troubled and and struggling but genuine about trying to live their religion, and someone who seems like they've got it all together, but they're hypocritical under the surface. I love this quote from Joseph Smith. One day, uh, someone came up and asked him about his own status. He said, I don't think there have been many good men on the earth since the days of Adam, but there was one good man and his name was Jesus. Many persons think a prophet must be a great deal better than anybody else. 
Suppose I would condescend. Yeah, I'll call it condescend, he says, to be a great deal better of you. I should be raised to the highest heaven, but who would accompany me? And on another occasion, Joseph Smith addresses hypocrisy by saying, I love that man who swears a stream as long as my arm, yet deals justice to his neighbors and mercifully deals his substance to the poor than the long, smooth-faced hypocrite. I don't want you to think I'm very righteous. I'm not. God judges men according to the use they make of the light which he gives them. And I like that idea that it's not necessarily uh, how how good you are at keeping the commandments. It's how sincere you are at keeping the commandments. A person that appears to be really righteous but is insincere in their observance of their religion is probably more dangerous than a person who appears to be struggling but is sincerely trying to do what's right. Like Joseph Smith said, a guy that swears a stream as long as his arm but deals mercifully and justly with people is better than a smooth-faced hypocrite. And it's not surprising that the Savior addresses hypocrisy. It's one of his pet peeves that appears from the scriptures. Now, when we get to verse 10, this is where the approach in section 50 really starts to diverge from what's in section 49. Section 49 is blunt, Here's the way it is. I've got to teach you the correct doctrine because you're in danger. In this one, it's not that there's incorrect doctrine being understood. It's that people are being deceived by more subtle spirits. So rather than using kind of a blunt statement to say you're wrong, the Savior instead says this, verse 10. And now come, saith the Lord, by the Spirit unto the elders of his church, and let us reason together that ye may understand. Let us reason even as a man reasoneth one with another face to face. The Savior demonstrates good teaching here by saying you don't have a one-size-fits-all to every problem that you face. The Shakers just need to be told what they were doing wrong. The members of the church need to be reasoned with. And the Savior gently but firmly leads his disciples to the correct conclusion by asking them questions. For instance, verse 13, Wherefore I, the Lord, ask you this question, unto what were you ordained? And then he provides the answer. Verse 14, To preach my gospel by the Spirit, even the Comforter, which was sent forth to teach the truth. Now, the manifestations that occurred in Kirtland might seem kind of strange to us today, but we still have this obligation to ask ourselves, what have we been ordained to teach? We have to be able to teach the core doctrines of the gospel in a way that changes people. It might be less about freaky spiritual manifestations and more about us teaching stuff that's substantive. For instance, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland warned, when crises come in our lives, and they will, the philosophies of men interlaced with a few scriptures and poems just won't do. Are we really nurturing our youth and our new members in a way that will sustain them when the stresses of life appear? Or are we giving them a kind of theological Twinkie, spiritually empty calories? President John Taylor once called such teaching fried froth. President Taylor called it the kind of thing you could eat all day and finish feeling totally unsatisfied. Now, in our teaching today, we got to ask ourselves the same question. When we go in to teach a lesson, are we giving them fried froth, something that's unsubstantive? Are we teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ is complex and difficult. It's sometimes upsetting uh, to people. But I remember hearing President Oaks on one occasion say, I I don't want anybody to feel bad unless they need to feel bad. Sometimes the gospel is intended to affect a change within us. And when we teach in the classroom, um, what we're ordained to do is basically teach the gospel, not just a bunch of comforting platitudes, a, a few things that would look really nice on your refrigerator mag magnet, but the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. So the Savior goes on in verse uh, 15 to say, When you receive spirits you could not understand and receive them to be of God, and this are you justified. 
Behold, you shall answer this question yourselves. Nevertheless, I will be merciful unto you. He that is weak among you shall be made strong. This is almost his way of saying, think about what you're doing and ask yourself if you genuinely think that comes from me. Am I the person that wants you to writhe on the floor like a snake or pretend to wave a sword around? How is that helpful? And then he gives maybe the best single verse or so criteria for distinguishing if communication comes from God or if it doesn't. He says, uh, verse 19, again, he that receiveth the word of truth, doth he receive it by the spirit of truth or by some other way? And if it be some other way, it's not of God. Therefore, why is it that ye cannot understand and know that he that receiveth the word by the spirit of truth receiveth it as it's preached by the spirit of truth? Wherefore, he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another and both are edified and rejoice together. So edification is the sign of a true communication that comes from God, that both the teacher and the hearer are edified and rejoice together. Now, we're not saying that persuasion or rhetoric or even advanced learning aren't useful when preaching the gospel. All we're saying is that a person gets their genuine power as a teacher from using the Holy Ghost. That might be what the Savior said when he talked about in so many passages, the weak things of the world, that yeah, you and I are bad teachers. <laughs> we just are. But the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Ghost, can make us good teachers. It can make the weak things of the world open their doors and it can soften their hearts. And now around the time that section 50 was received, there's a convert named Brigham Young who's hearing his first lessons of the gospel. Brigham Young later on talks about this idea that when you teach, the most important thing isn't that you're the smartest or most prepared uh, person in the room. It's that you have the Holy Ghost with you, that you've done the work. Brigham Young in an address said, If all the talent, tact, wisdom, and refinement of the world had been sent to me with the Book of Mormon and had declared in the most exalted of earthly eloquence the truth of it, undertaking to prove it by learning and by worldly wisdom, they would have been to me like smoke, which arises only to vanish away. But when I saw a man without eloquence or talents for public speaking, who could only say, I know by the power of the Holy Ghost that the Book of Mormon is true, that Joseph Smith is a prophet of the Lord, the Holy Ghost proceeding from that individual illuminated my understanding, and light, glory, and immortality were before me. I was encircled by them, filled with them, and knew for myself the testimony of the man was true. By the way, the missionary that taught Brigham Young was Eliezer Miller. And when Brigham Young made this statement, Eliezer Miller was in the audience. Brigham Young actually made that statement and, and then pointed out and said, there sits the man who baptizes me, and pointed at Eliezer Miller. He looks at Eliezer Miller and says, this filled my system with light and my soul with joy. The world with all its wisdom and power and with all glory and gilded show of its kings or potentates sinks into perfect insignificance compared with that simple unadorned testimony of the servant of God. So as you're getting ready for your lessons, as you're, as you're preparing to teach, whether you're a missionary or a gospel doctrine teacher or a primary teacher, you're speaking in sacrament meeting, or you're just teaching a come follow me lesson at home, remember that the thing that really makes the difference is the spirit being with you your sincerity. When you teach, both will be edified and rejoice together. In fact, in verse 23, the Lord says, that which doth not edify is not of God and is darkness. That which is of God is light. And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light 
and the light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And again, verily I say unto you, I say it that you may know the truth, that you may chase darkness from among you. Now the word edify in Joseph Smith's time, we don't use edify a ton today outside of church context. Um, in an 1828 dictionary, it literally meant to build in a literal sense or to improve or instruct the mind in knowledge generally, or particularly in moral or religious knowledge and faith and holiness. You might think of edify as the root word in edifice. An edifice is a sacred structure. We're building this sacred edifice. We're building a, a temple. And the Lord's trying to say that a true communication from him always builds you up. One of the reasons why these communications that were happening in Kirtland were so alarming was because they didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason to them. They didn't really do anything productive. Later on, Joseph Smith is going to say, some people frequently possess a spirit that will cause them to lay down. And during its operation, animation is frequently entirely suspended. They consider it to be the power of God and a glorious manifestation from God, but a glorious manifestation of what? Is there any intelligence communicated? Are the curtains of heaven withdrawn or the purposes of God developed? Have they seen and conversed with an angel or had the glories of futurity burst upon their view? This is a, sort of a, a way of saying when you perceive that you've received a communication from God, you also have an obligation to kind of say, did this build me up? Did this communicate some kind of light and knowledge? If it was just something that was for show, it might not be a genuine communication from God, but communication from God edifies. It builds us up. Marion G. Romney, back when he was uh, still around, remember the first presidency, liked to say, I can always tell when I've spoken by the Spirit because I learned from what I said. That's a nice way of saying that the teacher and the receiver are both edified and rejoice together. If you're doing it right, you're going to have connections come into your mind while you're teaching, and your students will also have connections come into their mind while they're teaching. Let me give you an example uh, of this. I'd mentioned Brigham Young earlier. After Brigham Young converts, he travels to Kirtland. Along the way, he travels with his best friend, Heber C. Kimball, and he gets to Kirtland and finds Joseph Smith chopping wood. Uh, Brigham later said, here was my joyful at the privilege of shaking the hand of the prophet of God and received the sure testimony by the spirit of prophecy that he was all that any man could be. Now that evening, Brigham Young goes to a meeting and at the meeting, as they're um, teaching, Brigham Young gets up and speaks in tongues. Now, he doesn't know what the message is, so you could say this isn't edifying, but everybody looks at Joseph Smith to see his reaction. Uh, Brigham Young later recalls, Joseph Smith told them that he had spoken in the pure Adamic language. So was there intelligence communicated? There was. It wasn't to Brigham Young, it was to Joseph Smith. Uh, Joseph Smith later on takes Brigham Young aside, this is according to Brigham Young, and said, some said he expected he would condemn the gift Brother Brigham had, but Joseph Smith told Brigham Young, no, it is of God, and the time will come when Brother Brigham will preside over this church. The latter part of the conversation, Brigham Young said, was in my absence. So in this case, Brigham Young receives a, a message that he doesn't understand. It is edifying. He feels built up. But the message was intended for Joseph Smith to let him know how significant this new convert was. Now the revelation goes on to say, He that was ordained of God and sent forth the same is appointed to be the greatest, notwithstanding he is the least and the servant of all. And the Savior warns that, verse 28, no man is a possessor of all things except he's purified and cleansed from sin. Likewise, it's important for us to kind of recognize that a humble attitude, seeing ourselves not as the person who's striving into the room. When I was a teacher, we used to say, it's better to be a guide on the side 
than a sage on the stage. Not seeing yourself as the center of attention or the source of all light knowledge is another way to gain the spirit and make sure that we're okay. Communication from God comes to us constantly, but we use phrases like, am I in tune or am I receiving? Because it's possible that the communication can be cut off. A few years ago, um, Elder McConkie took two of his sons, you might have remembered the story from conference, and he talked about radio frequencies. He actually sat down and tuned in their television set from a broadcast being broadcast, and then explained to them that the broadcast had been there the whole time, but they just weren't tuned into it. Then Elder McConkie told his sons, in the same sense, if at any time we manage to tune our souls to the eternal wave band upon which the Holy Ghost is broadcasting, since he's a revelator, we can receive revelations of the Spirit. If we could attune our souls to the band on which he's sending visions of eternity, we could see what the prophets saw in section 76, or anything that's expedient for us to see. Now, likewise, the Savior here is just basically reflecting and saying, you've got to basically put yourself in tune in order to get it. The more in tune you are, the more you'll be able to learn. Now, the last part of the revelation um, addresses a bunch of things, maybe some other things that were going on in the church, okay? The Lord knew their fears. He tells them, verse 41, fear not, little children, you're mine. I've overcome the world. Ye are of them that the Father hath given me, and none that my Father hath given me shall be lost. He gives counsel to specific people like Parley P. Pratt and uh, John Corll and Edward Partridge, who were new converts, just trying to do the best that they can. And when the revelation was received, Parley P. Pratt genuinely takes what the Lord tells him to heart. He said that later on he took Joseph Wakefield and they visited several branches of the church, quote, rebuking the wrong spirits which had crept in among them, setting in order things that were wanting, ordaining elders and officers, and baptizing as believed and repenting in their sins and administering but the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. We can receive unusual spiritual experiences. I'm not saying that it's impossible that you'll speak in tongues or that you'll prophesy, but the most common spiritual experience is just this edifying feeling that comes that lets you know that you're doing okay, that you're on the right track, and that the Savior is building you up. Sometimes I, I get the feeling that section 50 and other passages in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, um, demonstrate that sometimes we really want those showy gifts of the Spirit. We want to be able to do something amazing, like speak another language or prophesy or heal somebody. And there's a time and place for all those things. But the Savior, in reasoning with them right here, gently corrects a doctrinal deviation. They weren't completely off the reservation like the Shakers were in believing in false doctrine. They believed in true doctrines, but they had misinterpreted them. Likewise, when it comes to the people that we minister to in the church, there might be times when we have to sit down and just issue a, a correction. We just have to say, it's not that way, it's this way. This should still be handled as gently as possible. Then there's other times which are section 50 kind of situations where we have to sit down and reason with the individual. And rather than just bluntly telling them what's wrong, we have to walk them through a series of questions and answers that help them come to the conclusion for themselves. Everybody has to gain the testimony of the gospel of their own volition and in their own way. And knowing the difference between when we have to be blunt, like the Lord was with the Shakers, and when we have to be gentle, like the Lord was with the saints, is one of those real keys in learning to be a good teacher, a teacher that has the spirit and the sort of teacher that can edify and bless others. So that's our lesson for the week. I hope you had a good experience. Again, my name's Casey Paul Griffiths, 
And I want to thank Cedar Ford and David Ridges for letting me guest host. You have a wonderful week. Um, Lord bless you. And hopefully I'll see you back here again soon. Good night.